All right, hello, Star Wars fans and Move Milkers everywhere. Welcome to another edition of Blast Points Presents. Yeah, and we were lucky enough to be invited to two roundtable discussions this week and were able to talk to visual effects producer TJ Falls, Skywalker Sound legend, supervising sound editor David Accord, writer Bo Williamson, and executive producer Sane Wollenberg. Huge thanks to Lucasfilm for hooking this all up, inviting us in on all this. And yeah, in this first one with visual effects producer TJ Falls and uh, David Accord, you're going to hear questions from Tatooine Sons, Talking Bay 94, Sky Talkers, Jedi News, Fantha Tracks, us, and then Around the Galaxy. So enough of us talking about it. Let's just listen to it. First off, uh, thank you both so much for doing all this. This is great. Um, but especially you, Mr. Record, it's it's so exciting that you're here because my dream job is actually becoming a re-recording mixer for film and TV, and you're basically a legend in that field. Uh. And, <laughs> and, and Andor, we actually have this whole scene where Bix is about to be interrogated uh, yeah. using the screams of an alien species. Now, this sound is built up so much, yet we never hear it. We only hear the screams of Bix reacting to it. And this isn't the first time silence has been used to communicate in Star Wars. I'm thinking about the Holdo maneuver in The Last Jedi and the seismic charges in Attack of the Clones. So my question is, why is it that sometimes silence is more impactful than sound? Well, uh, it, speaking uh, in this particular scene, um, right. it's, a, it's a horrific moment for for Bix you know she's you know, she's being interrogated uh, it's the classic torture thing where her method of torture is being sort of shown to her and kind of built up to her and to the audience as well so we're kind of in it with Bix now and we're kind of also anticipating this torture this thing that's going to happen and in kind of a classic horror movie move mm-hmm. it's like you don't always show you know the creature, the thing, the bad guy, and let the audience kind of hmm. let their imagination, which is always going to be more terrifying than what you're going to right. show or hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, going to absolute silence, and it goes to absolute silence there, except for Bix's breathing and eventual scream. And of course, Adri Arjun is perfect in that mm-hmm. scene. Definitely. And he totally carries that. And then uh, you get the sort of like, uh, New Hopian mm-hmm. uh, cut to kind of like uh, <laughs> yes, of that was great. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Sure, of course. I'm Brandon from Talking Bay '94. Uh, a question for you both. Um, you both had extraordinary experience working on many other Star Wars projects. What differentiates Andor from those, and how has your work been impacted by, by maybe those is? Um, I, I can I can jump in here first. I mean, you, you, you're right. I've had a lot of experiences as David has uh, across a number of shows, and every show presents different challenges. But it's also the different creative opportunities that really let us uh, explore the different worlds. And what I find so fascinating is is the journeys that our characters take, and the way that we're then able to portray that from a visual standpoint. Uh, and Andor was very interesting in that Tony's vision from the very beginning was a very grounded, very earthly uh, type of experience. So as we approached our shots, we took everything from a a real world aspect of things. So even things you know that we've seen before, like Coruscant, uh, we started from you know almost a, a New York twentieth century New York type of atmosphere, you know, large buildings, Chrysler buildings, that sort of thing. But then. Mo and Leo, our supervisor, and working with our production designer, Luke Cole, as well, started going, well, how does this work and how would this work in in reality? So we started looking at Tokyo and other cities and going, well, if you had districts and different things, you know, how would how would it function in in the real world? And from there, we were able to extrapolate and take it into you know, the CG component of what it is. And and we approached every scene, every environment in that same similar fashion. Uh, which was, you know, really to, to me very exciting, but also I think helped, you know, build the world that that everybody wanted with Andor that we uh, that we ended up with. Hi, David and DJ. Thanks so much for taking the time um, 
to talk with us today. Uh, George has placed a huge emphasis on visual effects and sound design. How do your teams work together to achieve a cohesive look and feel for sound for Andor? Well, that's a great question. Uh, TJ? <laughs> yeah, it's it's always what, what I love about the way that we do our Star Wars projects. It's always very collaborative. Uh, and if you look at things like, you know, the Eye of Aldani, as that developed and built, you know, we had things of, of you know, meteor impacts on, on the ship and, and, and the buildup of what those sounds are and how it related to, to what you're hearing and experiencing in, in that journey affects the way that we then visually portray some of the, uh, the buildup, uh, of, of, of the journey. Um, and that's just one you know, little anecdote in terms of the way that we approach it, but it's, it's, it's fun because there always is a bit of back and forth, uh, you know, as we all work and collaborate together. Do you agree with that, David? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I think um, as much as uh, the visual effects always inform what we do, you know, we want to see what something looks like before we can uh, tell you what it sounds like. That's, that's kind of um, how we work. Um, but sometimes, yeah, sometimes we'll, we'll create a sound, um, early on and visual effects will kind of take that uh, into consideration, uh, when they're, when they're finishing the design for it. And so, yeah, there's, there always is a little bit of back and forth, um, with that. Hi, David. Hi, TJ. Thank you both for taking the time to talk to us. Um, so the question I've got for both of you is with so much of a legacy of Star Wars, you know, almost approaching 50 years of both sound design and visual effects what do you how do you approach the project what do you bring with you when you start out a project like this let's see i mean like like tj we've worked on several star wars uh projects um worked on rogue one uh, for example did a co-design um position on, on rogue one so kind of coming into Andor with a bit of knowledge on how the Gilroys like to work and what their uh, aesthetic is, is is helpful to to start. But of course, you there's a larger universe you have to consider um, as well with all the other the, the shows and movies. And going back to the legacy movies, um, which of course Andor and Rogue One kind of directly tie into the original. So it's it's a tricky tightrope to walk with if you've got a, a show with a particular aesthetic um, like Andor and you've got, you know, say New Hope, which has a, a somewhat different aesthetic. You know, there there are some similarities. They both have that sort of classic Star Wars, um, old new tech sort of thing where every it's like high tech, but everything's a little rusty and a little broken, you know. Um, so that, that that is helpful that they both carry that same aesthetic. But in terms of sound design, yeah, I mean, like, like like the Tie Fighters in in uh, Andor, like we obviously you're going to use a classic Tie Fighter sound there, but we you know gave it a little extra, you know, we gave it a little extra beef. It's got a little extra heavy jet engine underneath it. There's an extra creature roar that that happens with it on that pass by on the field. So we, we you kind of make what's old new, you know, and you kind of honor the legacy, but you want to kind of update it and give it that um, you know Andor polish yeah i'll just echo a little bit what david said there in terms of the visual aesthetic it's that same thing as honoring uh what came before but not being restricted by it either uh the universe of star wars is large enough that there's so many different places we're able to explore and approaches we can get that you still have the same base feeling that that you want from the legacy movies and 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 the entire universe but that we're able to expand and, and really bring a unique feel uh, you know, while still having it interrelate with things that we we did in Rogue and what we've done with the uh, the surrounding movies as well. Hi guys, Mark from Fantastracks here. Um, it's kind of been touched on already, but the you're bringing new sounds to the show and new visuals to the show, but it's got to be Star Wars familiar. It's still got to feel like Star Wars. People have got to connect with it in the same way that they connected with the originals. I know you've kind of touched on that already, but how do you? What's the equation there? What are you looking for that makes you think this blaster still sounds like a Star Wars blaster? That ship still looks like a Star Wars ship. Where do you find the meeting point for those things? You know, um, having I worked on my first Star Wars project I worked on was episode two was Attack of the Clones. And that was assisting Matt Wood and Ben Burt. I did the same role on episode three and then on into Clone Wars and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, so I've been 
doing a lot of Star Wars for the past couple of decades, and uh, you just kind of get a feel um, over time, especially learning under, you know, the masters, uh, what a certain thing should sound like to live in that world. And, you know, kind of, again, echoing that sort of feel of it's got to be kind of grounded um, and have that sort of, uh, you know, a little rusty kind of feel, a little gritty kind of feel. And going into Andor, um, uh, like Rogue One, uh, it's it's kind of that, but even more so. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's even more... Uh, gritty a little a little more uh i guess um almost purely diegetic uh in in sound some of the some of the guns we kind of go for are um uh maybe not as star warsy as uh as we've heard in the past some of them are some of them aren't um that was more a sort of a choice of you know for for variety than anything else but also we wanted the guns to sound like guns like like real guns with a sort of edge you know uh sci-fi edge to it but and to me in that way it also sort of maintained that um uh, you know grounded you know tony gilroy uh gritty diet you know aesthetic as well yeah i mean i mean very very similarly you know ilm has has done star wars since the very beginning uh, you know, as we as we know, is really came out of, out of Star Wars is, is why there's the company. Uh, so there is again that taste, that feel that 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 one knows as Star Wars. You know, we look towards you know Ralph McQuarrie's artwork and some of the very you know original you know areas where these concepts had come from. You know, but it is it's that level of experience. While we don't want to necessarily become stale, you want to push the envelope. You want to create new things. There's a there's a you know a framework. That we work around and you know, in, in collaboration with the production designer, with Tony, with ILM, we're able to, to build that visual world that still seems familiar and yet lets us explore into to, you know, the new shiny things as well. So that we've got you know, that excitement that, that one expects from Star Wars without going too far afield. Hi, everybody. Jason from Blast Points here. So good to talk to you all. Uh, so... We've seen visual effects in this new era of Star Wars evolving, and we've seen uh, storytelling, especially with Andor, evolving with Star Wars. So, as huge fans of Star Wars sound, how is the craft of creating sound for this new era of Star Wars evolving? It, it's uh, it's a tricky thing because if you're you're trying to stay in a world um, that George Lucas and Ben Burke created sonically um, in 77, uh, 80 and 82, uh, 81, wait, 83. Yes. Um, so uh, you're, you're going back quite a ways uh, in terms of like, there's some very old sound effects there. And then when Ben is making sound effects in, you know, for, for new hope or for empire, let's say, um, you know, there aren't, you know, like, like, uh, for instance, the TIE fighters never lifted off the ground and took off. They never dropped down from a hanging thing. And those, was, there was never those sound effects. So the, some of the tricks that you have to sort of do are, okay, this is what a TIE fighter sounds like. We all know what it sounds like. So what does it sound like when it takes off or sets down and you have to kind of create a sound uh, based on the original sound uh, that kind of fits in that world. That's sort of an example, I guess, I'm, I'm giving of what it is like to sort of create sounds within an existing universe um, is, is uh, you are, you're, you have some license to color outside the lines, um, but uh, you don't want to sort of make a habit of that. You know, it's, there is a world you want to honor and live within, but then at the same time, you have to modernize it and we have you know sound systems at home are are much better than what they were you know 50 years ago and so um there's an expectation i think now um of a certain uh sound um with modern soundtracks that we hear in the theater every day um to to uh update that sort of tone um for the for the show Does that makes sense Did i go off the rails no made total sense loved it 
Uh, thank you both for taking my question. I'm Pete Fletzer from Around the Galaxy. This is a question for both of you. On every one of the episodes of, of our show, we have a 10-question segment. And one of those questions happens to be, what is your favorite Star Wars sound effect? And as we know, of course, Star Wars has its own very unique sound. So what is what are both of your favorite Star Wars sound effects and and why? Uh, well, I'll jump in there for for that one since 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 you know Dave, you're the sound guy. Uh, my my favorite sound effect is the screaming Tie Fighter. I find it uh, frightening. I find it exhilarating. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a great question because there's so many good sounds. But when you hear you know even in the in the distance, even the the slight you know approach of a Tie Fighter, you know exactly what it is. Uh, you know to be afraid. And you know that something big and bad is going to happen. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think by far that's my favorite. Yeah, that's that's a good one. The the, the tie. There's something in it that's um, uh, it, it taps into some ancient part of your brain to kind of be afraid somehow, like some like you know prehistoric thing. Um, but uh, I also love the the lightsabers. I think that that's a that's a really great one. Um, it's there's nothing quite like that and i if you i can't imagine what else that would sound like you know what that is a perfect example of like you know that's perfect sound design that is exactly what that thing should sound like and i know that that's you know if it was something else you'd probably say that as well but i can't think of anything else um in the sci-fi world that is more perfectly sound designed than the lightsaber yeah, and what's interesting about those two is that they did; those are sounds that didn't exist really until then, and now you can't imagine, as you just said, any other sound for either one of those things. So, yeah. thank you for taking my question. When, as you guys were designing the visual effects, you know, one of the things that has been so interesting about Andor is it's not rooted in sort of the force side of things. And so you've got just a different palette that you're pulling from. You don't have the lightsabers, you don't have the force lightning and all the stuff that we're used to in others. You know, what were, were some of the specific choices that you needed to make in order to make sure that it still felt like Star Wars while it's such a different story and it's a different look? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a, you know, an interesting a question. It, it really comes down to the collaboration we had with our production designer and making sure that we still had that every story that we told in every scene and shot was still a Star Wars component of it. And so you'll still see reminiscent shapes. You'll see reminiscent uh, uh, colors. You'll see, you know, the, the way that, you know, whether it be, um, you know, the, the way, you know, things are, are, the explosions take place and you go, Hey, this is, this is a, a, a the, the factory, the abandoned factory in, in episode three is a good example of this, where you still have, you know, these giant anvils that are clearly otherworldly and, and very star Wars inspired falling down as people are, 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 are getting out of the way. And it's, you don't need force powers for that. You don't need you know the, something beyond the blasters to make that an entirely Star Wars-y scene. Uh, and it was it was looking at each episode and each moment and going, hey, we're doing what we always do. We're making Star Wars shots. We're making a Star Wars aesthetic. Uh, and just because we don't have some of these other components doesn't mean that we can't continue to make Star Wars choices in, in new and interesting ways. Wonderful. Um, I would love, again, to to talk about both of y'all's career journeys and getting to Andor, um, especially with how we're viewing it on television screens. And we've touched on that briefly, but as Star Wars has moved more to the TV realm and as both of y'all have worked more and more in making that a more holistic experience for people watching at home, I would love to dive in if that's challenging at all or if that's been something to adapt to for your teams as you've tried to create something for people that are just watching on the couch rather than in a movie theater. Um, for, for us, I mean, is it, is it, it is challenging. It, it's, it's more content uh, that we, that we build together. But what I find really exciting about it is it's more content put together. So you have a more, a better opportunity to get in depth and tell, you know, stories that have uh, just more, uh, uh, you know, in-depth uh, approach in dealing with your characters, but also with the visual storytelling of it as well. And so while, you know, there's a, a, a different 
methodology in terms of you know the way we shoot things and the practical approach of 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 what it is the output the intention is that it's it is a seamless journey and whether it's a film or a television show that you're getting that same level of expectation for what it looks like and how it makes you feel really yeah it's the same for us it's it's always um the, we approach it like you know for for andor it's like a whatever it is, a nine and a half, 10 hour movie. That's, that's kind of how we, we approach it. And, um, we, you know, we mix in native Atmos and, uh, you know, we, we have a full complement of, uh, editors and mixers and we're, we're, we have a, you know, one of the greatest composers working right now on the show. And of course, you know, Tony Gilroy is like, uh, he was the master. Uh, so uh, it's, there's uh, no punches pulled um, on on these uh, streaming shows for sure. Hi, I'm Caitlin, the other half of Sky Talkers. I wanted to ask specifically about this arc that this most recent arc, episodes eight through ten. Um, are there any specific themes or keywords associated with these arcs that help set the look and sound of them apart from each other? Interesting. Um, well, um, well, just to take the prison for example, then the main uh, sound thing in the prison is uh, um, is the you know the factory area, the floor, the you know, the worker area, those seven tables. Um, that's uh, uh, that's sort of the you know I guess the the sound of the prison in a way uh, is that sort of that rhythm of all the workers at the different tables trying to beat each other so they can get either flavor in their food or you know not get you know shocked um juxtaposed against there's sort of like an eerie quiet um in the and when there's when they're not doing that those are their that's what the the prison is it's like if you're not working then you've got sort of the dead silence to kind of reflect on your, your, where you're at in that moment um compared to like you know ferrix which is kind of a bustling town and uh it's kind of gritty and dusty and we kind of push the foley a little bit in there to kind of really feel all those greedy footsteps and, and and that sort of thing. And in the prison, it's a little more um, subdued um, unless you're on the factory floor. Does that answer the question? I feel like I don't answer the question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, and similarly for us as well, I mean, as, as in this, the latest arc is we're getting more into the world of, that the Imperials have created uh, and you, you, you know, visit, you know, the ISB and then you go back to the prison, you really st- see the the sterility of it all. And it's 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 understanding and it's it's storytelling in a way of of the 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 order that's created by the Imperial, where, again, you know, similar to what they would say and for for Ferrix, where it's a little more rough and tumble, a little bit more, um, you know, out, you know, the outskirts, uh, uh, a little more Wild West. Uh, but we've evolved into understanding what a more free society would have looked like at one point. Uh, and then, you know, what this organized, uh, really method, uh, you know, structured uh imperial rhythm is of well hey we're in a prison and um and there's one order that you have to follow right so um the question that i have is how has both visual effects and sound design changed as people's home cinema experience has got better and better we've all got bigger screens better sound systems so how have you both had to adapt as in you know skywalker sound and ilm to to sort of counter that because obviously we're we're listening more intently we're watching closer and we're seeing more yeah i mean i mean for us it's 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 a great thing that people are able to experience bigger and better things visually uh you know with the with everyone having hd televisions and hdr it expands our palette to be able to present material and so we'll create our shots uh, in 4k now, as opposed to doing it in 2k. So we've, we've evolved the resolution, which we're creating our, our material with, uh, but not only that, but it allows us to, in the finishing of it all with color grading to be, to, to present the deliverables that are specific for different viewing platforms. And the nice thing about the way the streaming and the way Disney plus works is, is based on your equipment, you'll get a certain stream of the show. And so with that, uh, it's really tailored to to an individual's viewing experience, uh, and and Dave, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's, it's a similar experience for you. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, I think that in the feature world, you, the focus is obviously more on a theatrical experience, and for for streaming, um, 
you know, like with the theater, we, at the end of your mixing process, you're going to make a home video version, you know, of your track. And then kind of for streaming, it's a, you're kind of starting with that. It's a bit of the opposite. Um, we do mix in, in Atmos for the, you know, for, for those that have a home Atmos set up, but we pay equal attention to our 5.1 and our stereo um, because, you know, we're, we're well aware that, you know, people are watching the show on, you know, laptops and, and iPads and using earbuds. And uh, we, we want that experience to be just as um, exciting as, you know, that your thousand dollar, your multi thousand dollar home Atmos setup. So um, it's a, uh, that's, I guess that's the real challenge. Yeah, you're getting the full experience no matter which platform you're on. And, uh, you know, we, we certainly will finish a, a show so you could enjoy it in the theater or at home or or on your iPad if you had to. And yeah. it's uh, it's presenting that material in that way. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Thanks, you guys. Much. It was a pleasure. All right. And now with this next one, we are going to be talking to writer Bo Willeman and executive producer Sane Wollenberg. In this one, you will hear, in order, Triad of the Force, That Gay Jedi, Tattooing Sons, Star Wars Explained, Sky Talkers, Pink Milk, Friends of the Force, Us, and Octo Radio. And this one is really great. Not like the last one wasn't, but this... this <laughs> This is an amazing conversation in here, so get ready for this. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Gustavo from Trial of the Force. Very excited to talk to you guys. Uh, so my question is for both of you. Uh, Andor so far has been a very precise and deliberate show. Uh, the pacing has been very intentional until we get like these moments that just hit you like a sledgehammer. Especially episode 10, we get a line from Luthen towards the end of the episode where he says... I've made my mind a sunless place. I share my dreams with ghosts. Like moments like that just like really capture what the feeling and, and theming of the episode is and the series as a whole. So my question is like, how do these moments come about? Like, how do we decide what characters kind of have like these moments that just like just punch you in the face and just like make your jaw drop? It's like sort of like asking a... Uh professional ice skater like you know how, how do you do how do you how do you do like a triple lots i <laughs> a lot of practice and a lot of falling down <laughs> until you get it right <laughs> um I, I i mean first and foremost it all starts with tony gilroy uh, he walked into the writer's room with uh, about an 80 page bible a very extensive and detailed idea of what he wanted to do over the course of the season there were some big gaps along the way which he admitted that we needed to figure out and um and 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 some things that he brought in that we ultimately tossed and and came up with better i hope better ideas for uh but he started with a very clear vision and and characters like Luth and Rail for instance or Cyril and Deirdre um and and some of the others along the way uh, pretty fully formed, you know, and, and so Dan, what Danny and I were trying to do was, uh, just help flesh that out, deepen it, ask questions, poke holes, um, see if we could replace really good ideas with even better ones. Um, you know, uh, but, but, but Tony's vision and leadership really gave us a, a running start. Uh, you know, when you talk about something like Kino Lloyd's, uh, uh, arc over the course of these three seasons, we, the, the notion of a prison was a pretty vague one. We knew that, okay, here's a guy who's just on the Aldani raid. Now he's on the run. Naturally, it's most interesting if something stops him being on the run. What's the most extreme version of that being thrown into a prison? Uh, how do we do a prison that isn't like every other prison movie you've ever seen in your life? Uh, it started almost from a very rudimentary place of, where, of well, most prisons are sort of dark and damp and lots of shadows and dirty. What if this one's like super bright and clean? You know, if most prisons have lots of guards what does a prison look like as a very few guards how do you pull that off um maybe they're maybe it's a factory maybe they're building something who knows and 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 kino is a character that we developed in the room from scratch uh and and you know layer by layer first it's like well maybe he's a foreman maybe he buys into the system maybe maybe cassian has to convince this guy in order to have a chance of getting out and maybe now he becomes this opportunity for a mini arc where you see how over a very short amount of time someone can go from plugging into the system as a sort of automaton into becoming a rebel which is part and parcel of the larger story that we're trying to tell of cassian and and so you you kind of just almost approach in these very rudimentary, simple ways, layer up, 
you know, one, one, uh, you know, you're learning sort of, I don't, I don't know why I brought up ice skater analogy because I know nothing about ice skating. Um, but, but, you know, you, you got to do one twirl yeah, before you do two and then three and, and eventually you, you, you hit something and you land it and you feel like that feels right, you know? So. Um, hello. Um, I wanted to bring up something, Bo, that you mentioned at your BAFTA screenwriters lecture, because I've studied and worked in theater my whole life. And in that talk, you mentioned how discoveries made in earlier episodes can have an influence and ripple effect on scripts that are still in development, much like a theatrical production process. So for either of you, have there been any standout moments like these while you while you both were working on Andor, like any moments that you revisited or rediscovered while writing that were influenced from earlier scenes or earlier episodes that you may have worked on i think san is better for this one because she's been in the trenches with tony since before i arrived and and long after i, <laughs> I finished my last draft on the script uh so you've you've witnessed everything Sana. I, think, I think you know certainly for all the you know really strong vision and kind of over you know and kind of overriding kind of story arc you know that tony brought into the room and that we that but then fleshed out with the help of his you know trusted collaborators you know um Bo and and dan you know as and then you know whatever whatever wherever we took it at the writers' room, of course, then the really hard work starts because then everybody took these episodes away and then the, you know made them into you know you know an outline and then of course right really digging deep to writing the script and I think you know things evolve and you really dig deep for you know the finding the broader you know of a pass is you know and getting that right is you know was kind of quite you know, dynamically and quickly achieved when you have, you know, three very strong, you know, creative, you know, people in a room, you know, that really know and trust each other. And, you know, the speed that was actually in the and the, the creative feeding of each other was kind of really fast. But then when everybody dug in deeper, of course, you come across other questions and, and new things and they constantly feed back and forward and, 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 you know, and good ideas. Then you're, you know, then you feed them back, you know, backwards. And I think that is a, that evolving thing when you strive for perfection and finding a very intricate, you know, multi-layered, you know, piece with a huge, you know, with a lot of players within the way. I think that is very much part of the process. And and if you pay attention to that and really benefit from what you find and keep on challenging, you know, the own process, you come, you know, hopefully, you know, you get to something very, you know, complex and multi-layered and rewarding at the end. And I, I think I got lucky too, because, uh, the Nate, the prison is such a big build, and Sana actually had to make that happen with Luke. Uh, that I believe the prison block was shot last, right, Sana? It was it was shot last because we were quite contained, and it seemed the right way, um, you know, to kind of finish the whole show. But it also really allowed, you know, for bow writing when you're dealing with something, with anything that you could write, and when you dug deeper into it, and then you were left with actually having to produce the scripts, but you had to create and Luke was our designer and we had to, you know, it's a constant feeding back. Okay. If I get to go to that corner and how does I do this? And how would this work in the prison? And it's a constantly evolving thing and having that time for that very specific world to, to kind of evolve and, you know, to be written and for us to be then allowed to, you know, able to create it. It was a good place at the, you know, to shoot it last. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so I, you know, I'm lucky that it benefited from, uh, this incredible cast that now had months working together, Sana and Luke and everyone else. Uh, they, you know, here, here was, I, I basically got to benefit from this is the, the final push here. And in a way, I guess all of those prisoners escaping Narkina five at the end, it was also for all of you. Like we're finally wrapping production. One way out. <laughs> One way out. <laughs> you printed t-shirts for everybody with it on. I, uh, I'm Sam with Tatooine Sons. First, episode 10 uh, is an absolute masterpiece. I think we can all agree with that. Um, and Andy Serkis's performance could easily win him an Emmy, in our opinion. Um, but I've just got a quick two-part question. First, did you have Andy Serkis in mind when uh, you wrote that speech to the prisoners? And second, when he was leading them in chanting One Way Out, as y'all were just saying, um, were you already considering the harsh reality that Kino Loy can't swim and potentially doesn't make it out of the prison himself? When we're de developing characters, especially ones that were developed in the room from scratch, the way Kino was, uh, sometimes you might bang around like, you know, what, 
what is this person like? Who might play them? And sometimes you're talking about an actor that you know might be you know from 50 years ago or something. You're you're trying to get a sense of a vibe. You're not necessarily trying to cast it in the room. Uh, wasn't thinking of Andy or any actor when uh, per se specifically like we're writing this towards this actor. Um, uh, but we were definitely going for a, a, a particular vibe. Um, and and when uh, the, and what we did know was that we wanted to write one hell of a, a cameo arc. That this was for 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 something that a, a really great guest actor could come in and essentially kind of headline those three episodes as the face of this prison. We wanted to write a role that could attract someone amazing, and um, and so luckily for us. Uh, you know, Andy was was available and wanted to do it and felt like winning the lottery um, because we were like, if we don't get someone of, of that caliber, the, the I don't think, you know, the prison will work. You know, but also I think so, eventually, you know, when when the three scripts, you know, were kind of, you know, all there and had just, you know, evolved it, he really became somebody that. I think we all felt, you know, really drawn to, and it kind of became a natural, you know, a natural bit of casting for us. And then, you know, we were, you know, we were lucky that, you know, he felt the same about, you know, our, you know, our show and that part, and, you know, and the rest is for everybody to enjoy. In terms of the very end, I can't swim. No, I mean these are these things where you don't start with that necessarily. Uh, first is like okay, what's the journey this guy has? You know, he he's plugged into the system. He's, if he's not pro empire, he's kind of a shill for it, for out of pure <laughs> self-interest. Um, and we, okay, we're going to have a prison break at the end and he's going to be leading the way. That's quite an arc over the course of three episodes. Mm -hmm. But you're always looking, how do you subvert expectations? How Or how do you, uh, in a good way, and replace right. them with something better? How do you have the most emotional impact? If there's a triumph for this guy, you know, is there also a tragedy? Uh, and I forget whether we were talking about Luthen's speech uh, first with Young or or the ending for Kino, but we were very interested in the theme of sacrifice. Hmm. Uh, and and so, I mean, it's so rousing. I, I I mean, I knew what would happen when I watched that episode again recently, episode ten, and I was still like, my pace, right. my pulse was, mm -hmm. was racing and. Uh, and and to think they finally have made it out to this place a, where we begin with three episodes, two episodes before this might be the last breath of fresh air that you ever breathe in, mm -hmm. and here they are breathing that fresh air, and there's there's freedom in front of them. Mm -hmm. it, I don't it, I don't I remember it was in the room, and I don't remember who said it first. Maybe it was me. Maybe it was Tony. But you're you're putting yourself in the physical space of now. I finally get to dive into the water and try to swim for my freedom. And I think we were trying to do just the math of like, okay, uh, how far away from the shore is it? A mile? Is it two miles? Can these guys actually, you know, how many of them are going to make it? Are there going to be tie fighters coming in? Like, you know, how what does it take you an hour to swim? Is that realistic? Like, we're we're dealing with just like the basic logic issues, and then it was like, what if Kino can't swim? <laughs> wow. Mm. What if, and then you're like, oh, of oh my God, he's just led five thousand people to freedom, wow. and when and then you think of the line, I'm going to consider that I'm uh, that I'm already dead. Yeah, because he knows mm -hmm. even if he makes it out there mm. that that he's a goner, mm. and then you're just like, well, uh, that's that's when the story almost takes over and tells you what it needs to do. Mm. You're like, it's obvious that that must be done. Hmm. You no, know, it's not even a, up for debate. Hmm. Thank so you. It's really these, these things sort of arise slowly and surely and organically. I wish we were brilliant enough to know that <laughs> from the get go, but you kind of <laughs> have to. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Alex from Star Wars Explained. Um, the prison arc, especially episode 10, is one of my new favorite Star Wars stories, and you just broke my heart again talking about it. Uh, it it's so well done. But the first two episodes—the first two episodes—are very bleak for a Star Wars story. The balance between despair and hope that has to be tricky to achieve. So, how did you achieve that balance? And were there any moments or situations that you considered for Narkina Five that you ultimately decided, like, no, that's too far for a Star Wars story? 
Mm. Well, Sana can speak more in terms of, you know, if 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 anything down the, the road ended up being too far, although I, uh, from what I remember us discussing the room and, and working on in the scripts, we pretty much did what we set out to do. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, in terms of, look, in the previous three episodes, you have the Aldani raid, uh, or I mean, there's one episode that sort of buffers between those, those, but, but if Cassian's been on the Aldani raid, this was a one and done. This is, you know, I want some money in my pocket. I got to get out of here. Maybe I'm a little swayed by the, you know, the manifesto, maybe, um, sort of seeing the, you know, the, the way that the Aldanis are being treated and then starting to, you know, I, I know, I know, you know, what, what happened on Ferrix and, and maybe this is starting to make me feel a little more anti-empire, you know, I mean, we know he's anti-empire, but I mean, in a more sort of, in a way with more agency. Um, but then he goes off to Niamos and he, he's doing what he set out to do, which is take the money and run and disappear. Uh, so if you really want to see the process of someone becoming a full-fledged rebel, they he needed to be confronted with the full oppressive weight of the empire uh and and it, it seemed like the very best place to do that is in a prison that kills hope you know um if if you're trying eventually to get to a new hope you have to ask yourself the question uh um why is that hope new because that hope was being smothered so let's see it but then we know we're going to give the audience some friggin' hope by the end of it, at least. So it's worth the journey. And I hope we earn that. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caitlin from Sky Talkers. So nice to speak with you both today. Um, we've talked some about Cassian and the prison, and I wanted to shift gears and ask about Mon Mothma's story in these episodes. Um, we spent the majority of our time with her within her home and with her family. Can you talk about some of the writing choices that led to telling her story largely from within the home thus far? Well, with Mon Mothma, I mean, first of all, we, we, have, we knew we had the amazing actor Genevieve O'Reilly to to bring life to this character and she's so capable. And so uh, uh, we knew we could, we could, we could, uh, we could do almost anything we want there and she could pull it off. And if you're, you're asking yourself questions about people's journeys over the course of this series, um, she's becoming radicalized too. Uh, and, and, and with her cousin Vel representing the face of someone who's actually willing to get in the trenches uh, showing back up to her her home and reminding her that rev that revolution uh, actually requires uh, violence and and sacrifice and danger. Seeing her begin to process that and think about sacrifice in a very real way, as opposed to an abstract way, is uh, is is crucial to her story. Uh, and and how and 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 sort of you know making you think about okay you need people that are willing to die for a revolution or a rebellion you also need people that are willing to raise the money <laughs> to buy those people the weapons and things they need in order to pull it off and so it's it's trying to paint the pic the fullness of the picture of, as as sort of you know disparate and kind of frayed and non organized as the rebellion is at this stage uh, how does it begin to coalesce. Um, and but then what does it feel like to be in a senator's shoes who has the burden of that on her shoulders? And, and you know, in ep if episode 10 really does focus on sacrifice and you're hearing Luthen talk about how he sacrificed everything, you're seeing people like Kino and many other prisoners who are sacrificing their lives for the greater good so that some of them can escape, if not all of them. You're, you're looking at a potential sacrifice or at least a sacrifice that's asked of Mon of of her daughter and we don't know what she's going to do yet stay tuned but we i hope have done you know the storytelling up until this point to get the sense that being married at 15th to 15 years old to Perrin maybe wasn't her favorite thing in the world and now she's being asked to consider sacrificing her daughter to the same tradition for the greater good 
But also, ahead, you know, Mosma, Mon Mosma has been a character that, you know, we have overseen the public persona and, you know, and we have seen, a, you know, a very particular Mon Mosma and, and really what Under does, you know, really goes right behind the scenes and takes a character in a different, and shows us a very different aspect of her life. I, I mean, I would hope that people were gasping when you realize that she is actually fundraising money for the rebellion. And, you know, and, and, you know, and I think anything, you know, the humanity of her story and what brings her to become a rebel herself is, you know, automatically brings you also back to your families. You know, it is about, you know, her family connection and her birth, you know, made her a senator at the tender age of 16 and dictated a lot of her life. And she has given it to it willingly. It's like, you know, she she took that burden on, you know, like a queen, you know, kind of descending a, a throne. And, and, you know, it had a huge personal impact on her life. And the empire crouching down, now compromising also what she tried to believe to do through the Senate, you know, is you know, is a human story to tell and, and the family connection, the impact of her marriage, her life as a mother, her old friendships, all those things are actually you know, very much humanity and show you how hard it is to make decisions when somebody pushes you too far that you can no longer, you know, be silent and do nothing. But the human sacrifice is huge. And I think therefore bringing us into her home feels very important um and, and 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 significant you know to tell what her sacrifices and who she is and and why she acts you know in the way she does when we know the perfect persona that she has to play most of her life hello thank you for your time today i'm brian from pink milk where we talk star wars queerly and um first i want to say thank you for creating cinta and bell for us, uh, we know in the past that Disney's been reluctant to acknowledge queerness exists. Um, I also want to say thank you to Bo for writing that beautiful dinner scene where her queerness is actively challenged. Many of us queer folks have had to or continue to sit at those um, <laughs> dinner conversations, especially with Thanksgiving looming here in the United States. <laughs> um, I'm curious if there was any difficulties in creating those two characters? And if so, what sacrifices were had to make to get them on screen? Luckily, uh, I'm really, uh, I, I, I mean, as far as I'm aware, there, there was no pushback whatsoever, as far as I'm aware. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, first of all, let me say all credit goes to Tony sort of in the vision and conception of this show. And, and, um, and I think that, you know, when we were talking about Vel and Cinta early on, we weren't necessarily even talking about them being in a relationship. That was a discovery. You know, it wasn't like, oh, we want to uh, let's let's have this queer couple here at the center of our show. No, um, we, we were we had we had Vel, which we knew from the Bible was going to be a very important character. She's related to Mon and. And um, and we really liked the tension between being the sort of rich girl from Chandrilla on the one hand, and then eating the grubs, you know, and, and sleeping in a tent out on Aldani. <clears throat> but as we had to populate Aldani, we wanted these to be interesting people, you know, we're not just sort of like, uh, uh, you know, meat for the meat grinder that are going to get, you know, sort of torn up by this raid. Let's really consider each of them. And Cinta started to emerge. Yes. Then, kind of organically. Yeah, um, they they had to go out with each other. It just it just became yeah, like part of the story. We really didn't set out, but it just felt really right for 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 both of the characters and for the Aldani gang and for our show generally. For for Vel's choices in life and you know part of why she turned her back on her Chandrillion rich girlness. You know, she clearly had you know had to you know fight you know for for being you know it's all the problems that you know that we know that you know that it will be in the galaxy as true as as they are here on earth i think and it's just it just feels right to 
you know, to broaden. Yeah. If we are going, you know, if we are the kitchen sink side and we're going really, you know, you know, into all these characters and get to know them, you inevitably want to know who they're like and how they live and what makes them taken, you know, not only for this one big moment, but generally. And I think the well that we meet, you know, who she is and who she loves and and you know and and is really part of who she became and how she also became the rebel of the cause. So it was just a very natural thing. And we never got any pushback from anybody. And thank God it is 2022 and just about time that we can depict, you know, all of society um, rather than only very particular, acceptable, um, you know, traditional ways. I think, though, I think the key, you know, and in, 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 in I hope why it works, you know, is that, uh, we started with people out in the world trying to foment rebellion. Um, and that's it. And then who are these people? And that we didn't start with this character is gay or this character is straight or this character is bi or this you know character is anything other than let's start with them. Let's drop in with them in action, trying to do something. Um, and then, and then if we arrived at that, it happened organically. So it, it, it's not what defines the characters. It's just part of who the characters are, you know? And I, um, and, and I, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's how it happened. And, uh, and then, and then once you've made that choice, you just now have to be in the reality of these two characters and say, okay, what is this relationship? What what's right about it? What's wrong about it? What's work? What works? What doesn't? And then what are the dramatic implications down the line? Hi, I'm Brad from uh, Friends of the Force. Uh, speaking of Cinta and Bell, um, something Cinta says is, "I'm a mirror. You love me because I show you what you need to see," which I thought was an amazing line. Um, likewise, I think fans are loving Andor because it's showing us what we, the viewers, need to see about this point in history and i think dystopian stories are at their best when they say something about our own world so uh, for you guys for both of you what sort of big ideas were important for you to examine through the show whether it be this whole season or this this sort of three episode arc and what do you hope viewers see and truth as well uh son has been much more front row seat from the very beginning all the way through so i want to turn it over her but but I'll, i will say that tony walked into the room saying i want to think about this first season is the education of cassian andor right like how what does it take to go from being a, a sort of self-serving um <clears throat> guy who 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 uh you know may have a distaste for the empire but is ambivalent in terms of doing anything about it too what does he need to go through an experience in order to have a real transformation where he is choosing by choice to 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 walk towards re rebellion um and and so i think how how does that evolution take place in the human soul and then you start asking yourself that of all the characters in your in the show um what evolutions are they going through and and how are they becoming the people they are um and and i and i think a big part of this ultimately i mean because we know where rogue one is going to get us it comes down to sacrifice and you feel that very strongly in these three episodes so so i think personally me and i can't speak on behalf of tony although we've talked about this sort of thing a lot I, I think the cost of rebellion, the cost of doing something, <laughs> the cost of doing something that you think is right with big stakes, um, what sacrifices are you willing to make? Uh, if these are questions that are swirling around, I think that's um, those are not only thought provoking, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, emotionally um, rich. Sana. No, I mean, I can only add to that, but it's also, you know, the, the power that an average person can have when you are pushed in a, you know, to a place where you can't but fight back, you know, and it is a strength to actually move and shift something and, and, you know, and be part of rebellion and try to change the world is something in all of us and in everybody. And I think that's why the series focuses on a lot of very normal people that are caught up in a very particular, you know, you know, time was in the galaxy far, far away, you know, where really, you know, which are the formative years of the rebellion and, and, you know, and I think what that does to you and how people react is just, you know, it's really at the heart of it and at the heart of Cassian Andor's journey, you know, that, that who we know is the rebel that will give his life for the cause. And, and, you know, so 
it's kind of like the other, but I'm sure Tony Gilbert could it all put it all much better. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, this is Gabe uh, from Blast Points, and we're huge fans of George Lucas's first feature film, THX 1138. And there appear to be subtle and not so subtle influences in this prison arc to that film. When working on these episodes, was that something that you looked at thematically? So quite honestly, the answer is no, not not consciously at first. Uh, we, we started, as I mentioned before, from a place of how do we do a prison sequence that doesn't feel like every other prison we've seen? Um, and, and, you know, we, we started talking about this sort of bright, white, antiseptic space. Uh, we started talking about ways that you could control the inmates without having to use the obvious, like, gun to the head or what have you. Um and so we just started from that very that very simple place. But writers' minds work in strange and mysterious ways. So, <laughs> so I mean, eventually, at a certain point, it, yes, it became obvious, and it, that there were <laughs> some of what we were discussing, and especially as we got into production design, bared some resemblance to THX. Uh, and then once you sort of realize that, you can be intentional about it, of course. Um, Unconsciously, maybe in in one or all of us, George Lucas's first feature film was bubbling forth, and we weren't fully aware of it. I mean, you as, as a writer, um, uh, you are constantly uh, uh, resurfacing things that have influenced you over your life, uh, whether it's you know experiences you've had or, or other pieces of art that you're not always fully conscious of when when they're <laughs> surfacing um and then only later do you realize oh yeah wow like there is some stuff and i actually because i i had a i assumed someone was going to ask about this i i went back and watched uh, thx again last night and i was like wow yeah <laughs> holy, holy cow here yeah there's there's definitely <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I take that as a good sign. You know, we're, we're channeling a little bit of OG George Lucas, and that's never a bad thing. Sana? That's never a bad thing. <laughs> Hi, Bo. Hi, Sana. Alden and Nikki here from Octo Radio. He's Screens are weird. He's down here. Uh, in the Hi. current climate, especially post-2016, we've seen resistance emerge across art, especially in TV, and we think Andor reflects that, particularly with moments like Luthen's monologue in episode 10. So as a writer and producer, respectively, how has crafting this particular story uh, personally helped you both unpack your own ideas and emotions concerning today's world? God, that's a deep question. How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've I mean, got all day. <laughs> foremost, uh, Andor is a work of fiction. Right. And um, and we're working within a, a, a beloved and vast pre-existing franchise. Uh, and many people have in, interpreted that that franchise back to 1977 in a whole host of ways. Um, and, and so, you know, look, everyone's going to bring their sort of personal history and thoughts and, you know, uh, and, 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 and opinions about the world <laughs> to the table when when they're working on something. But but really you know, our, our, our goal is to service the characters that we've created and the story that feels right for them within a pre-existing framework and try to do something original with it. Uh, you know, to whatever extent people want to, uh, you know, interpret that, you know, or see it through a particular lens and see it as applicable to anything, you know, uh, past or present, um, that's 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 wonderful. We, you know, it, it means that maybe you've created something that generates interesting conversations or debates that pe people could have in terms of influences for us. I mean, you could, you know, uh, you know, you, you could look at the French resistance. You could look at the American Revolution. You could look at a whole host of different things that one could draw comparisons to. And um, but uh, but but honestly, and you know, <laughs> we're not sitting down trying to think about this in any sort of didactic or essayistic way when we're doing it we're literally like okay uh like so you know what's he like with his mom at breakfast you know like what does that look like and you just try to build a believable world and when you build a believable world naturally um you know and it's a complex and sophisticated world if you're lucky enough to get to that stage uh it, it leaves a lot open to interpretation and that's a good thing Sana? Therefore, I think you can really also 
you know, you know, fantasy, and you know, in a when you're in, in that when you're moving in that genre in the galaxy far, far away, if you're creating a, you know, a piece of fiction that is, you know, telling a truthful and complex and political story that is true to that world, I think, you know, it is a real. You know, a lot of people find, you know, emotional connections to characters, to situations, and it, that can, you know, touch them. And, and, and I think that is a really wonderful thing about fantasy. <laughs> 